Now, speaking of life, we have been wrestling with the question over the last few weeks, what is it all about? What is the essential purpose of life? How can you derive meaning from your life? And in order to track the quest for meaning in life, we have been following the life experience of Solomon. And we've chosen to do so because his experience is recorded for us without error, by the way, down to this very day in the book which is known as Ecclesiastes. And he is a fit person to study because he really lived life largely. He had the best of what it had to offer, and he came nonetheless to the very sad conclusion that it was an exercise in futility to try to find meaning in life. He used the expression, under the sun, earth-bounded life, life available to his senses only, what he could taste, what he could touch, what he could feel, that kind of life, without any notion of eternity, a life in which God, the giver of life, was absent. Life under the sun, said Solomon, is like striving after wind. It is an exercise in futility. But good news, he didn't end with futility. Uh, He got rid of the futility in his life. He found freedom from futility, and so as to symbolize it, you notice we don't have that a horrible sign here anymore. We got rid of our futility as well because we're going to end the series tonight, I hope, on a good and positive note. What is it that Solomon concluded after his rather thorough and exhaustive investigation of all of the options available to him uh, designed to give him a sense of satisfaction in life? Well, here is his final answer to the question, life What is it all about? It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, last chapter of the book, verse 13. Solomon said the conclusion, when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. The conclusion, when all has been heard, when all is said and done, when all life experience has unfolded, when all reflection, when all philosophy, when all sensuality, when all study, when all reflection, has, when all debate, when all discussion has come to an end, here is the final word on life. The conclusion, and this settles it to life, in two words, is fear God. Solomon found out that when you fear God, you find the reason for being, you find meaning, and you find purpose in life. And he came to the point where he, I guess, felt it was ridiculous to even entertain the notion that one could possibly be fulfilled in living life apart from reverential fear for the giver of life. The conclusion is to fear God. He reflected on his life and life in general and on all that he had experienced and he experienced the best of what life under the sun had to offer and yet he remained empty and unsatisfied. He experienced pleasures and projects 
and popularity and positions and abundant possessions. And yet after at all, he still felt unsatisfied in his quest for the substantive ultimate purpose of life. And so this is his final word on how to experience satisfaction in life. His final word is two words, fear God. If he was here, we would say, Solomon, is that your final answer? And he would say, yes, yes, a thousand times, yes, that is my final answer. When all has been heard, the conclusion, when all is said and done, is this, fear God. He would say these two words unlock the mystery of life. These two words can lay to rest one's quest for meaning in life. Fear God. Uh, Folks, do you realize that it is part of the human condition to seek satisfaction in life? Uh, Think about it. You do not have to be coached in it, taught it, persuaded to do it. It seems to be an inherent part of the human condition not to settle for what is under the sun. Something in us has given us impetus to look for more. Something in us tells us there is more. Something in us tells us Something is missing. We're empty. There's a void. There's more to life than what life under the sun has to offer. And so from the time we can remember, if you think back, we've orchestrated our lives in a quest to satisfy our being, to find meaning in life. And it may surprise you to know that that appetite for satisfaction that uh, quest for meaning in life has been implanted in us by none other than God himself. God put it in us. We're different than other elements of creation order. We're different than a rock or a tree or the seas. No, what God has implanted in us, amongst other things, which defines us distinctively as human rather than as inanimate, is this quest for meaning and purpose in life. And God himself put it in there. Look, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10. Solomon said, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Solomon recognized God gave man, if you will, an assignment, a task. And what is the task? Well, what is this God-given task? It's the task of finding meaning in life. And so we are each, as humans, on this quest And it is God himself who has laid this burden, that's how Solomon saw it, upon us. Why would God do that? I'll tell you why. God put this burden upon us, this appetite for satisfaction, this seeking of meaning and purpose in life. God did that to us so that our search for satisfaction 
would lead us to the place of self-emptying, self-denial, and lack of confidence in self. I think it's God who put this uh, appetite, this quest for satisfaction in us so that um, we could fully engage in it and quickly get over it. The quest for meaning and purpose is designed to lead us to the conclusion that we can't find it. Uh, God wants us to come to the same place Solomon did, empty. He wants us to cry out in despair, frankly, just as Solomon did. Futility of futilities, all is futility. Everything's empty. He wants us to say, I've tried everything. It's like striving after wind. Wind feels real. But it's not. You can't attach yourself to it. It's no mooring point. It can't give stability to your life. It's an illusion. I'm empty. He wants us to conclude there has to be more, but I don't know how to get there. Life under the sun has left me unfulfilled and still yet unsatisfied. And he wants that sense of satisfaction. He wants that realization that we have, like Solomon, ruled out every alternative. He wants us... He wants it to lead us to the place where we seek our rest and our peace in him. That's what happened to Solomon. And so almighty God, good, gracious, loving, I think allows us to fall into despair. But he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to be lifted from it. But let's face facts. Most of us have to rule out other alternatives and options before we cry out to God and God alone. Let's face it. If we were to go around the room uh, and were honest, if we felt safe enough, we would say the same things, perhaps in different words, but the same things Solomon did. We would say, I tried drugs. I tried alcohol. I tried sex. I tried pornography. I tried gambling. I tried compulsive, this, that. We, I tried relationships. I, I, I. Until I came to the point where I realized it's empty. It left me empty, more miserable than ever before. I came to a point of despair and I cried out to God for help. And that was the beginning of my new life in God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. I found him, the Prince of Peace. In Hebrew we say, the Sar Shalom. I found him to be the source of Shalom, the source of peace. But I had to travel the journey of life in my own strength before I was ready to look above the sun to heavenly realities, to eternity, and to the God who was there in order to find my peace in him. And so Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, He, God, has also set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Do you realize God, as an act of love, has confounded us? Are you confused with life? You can thank God for that. Now, I, notice, uh, I realize this is deep water and not exactly a typical message, but I'm telling you it's biblical. God has implanted in us a notion of more, eternity. We know there's more than live, die, that's it, that's all she wrote. Somehow it beats in our breast, this notion of eternity. Where did it get there? God put it there. He has also set eternity in their heart. And yet, he has withheld from us the capacity to apprehend eternity. 
things of eternal enduring consequence. We don't know how to access those things. We don't know where to find them. We don't know how to find answers to the notion of eternity, which beats in our breast. We know there's got to be something bigger. There's got to be something better. There's more. But we're frustrated in our efforts to get there. We cannot discern what God is up to, Solomon said. And somebody has well coined the phrase in describing this disorientation, this confusion. Someone has referred to it as the divine sabotage. God himself has implanted the notion of something bigger and better, and he himself has sabotaged it. So we would be frustrated in our fleshly efforts to arrive at satisfying conclusions about life and thus be forced, whoever will, thus be forced to cry out to the God above the sun for the peace that only he can offer. Why did God do this if he's so loving? Well, he has determined, as I mentioned, to let our quest for meaning bring us to the end of ourselves. How can we be filled with the very presence of Almighty God when we're so filled up with ourselves? Until we cease believing in ourselves, by the way, that's the mantra of the day, believe in yourself. Well, you keep doing that and pumping up the self and you will leave no room for the very presence of God in your life. And so God deflates the ego, doesn't he? <laughs> God brings us down so that we died to self so that we can be alive to Christ. But you have to die first, don't you? You have to die to self first. It's the divine Sabotage, don't you see? God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can find him and worship him and he alone. Why? Because he loves us so much he doesn't want to share us. That's why. He doesn't want to share us with pleasures and passions and positions and possessions and projects and all the things that Solomon gave his heart to. He wants our heart to be wholly open to him. And how do you get to that point? By having a hurt heart, a broken heart, a confounded heart. By having a heart filled with a sense of futility and meaningless. Those are the people who are most ripe for conversion. You have to be lost before you can be rescued. If you think you have no need to be rescued, then you won't value the rescuer. And so a loving God lets us come to the end of ourself just as he did with Solomon. He's constructed life under the sun in such fashion that we all miserably fail at finding meaning apart from him. And we examine people, contemporaries, folks in our own day who also have had the best of fame and fortune. And we have seen the outcome of their lives, haven't we? They've been frustrated in their quest for meaning, their empty shells. So many of their lives come to a premature, tragic end. At their own hands, they have failed miserably in their quest for satisfaction in life. And so God has implanted within us the very clear notion of eternity and of, and of the ultimate. And yet, we can't figure out how to access those big things, those 
ultimate truths. We're confounded. I tell you, it's the divine sabotage. And it's designed to lead us to him. And remember recently speaking with someone, but I don't remember who. You'll forgive me if it's you. Um, but we were enjoying the conversation about salvation and our own experiences and being saved. And I remember sharing with this person, it was just recent, um, that uh, when I came to to be rescued by the Lord Jesus. I was a little put off by him for not saving me sooner. I was 23. I was in the military and a guy shared the gospel and I responded really fairly quickly. It just made sense to me. So I thought, God, why didn't you tell me beforehand? Why did you wait till I'm 23? And then it occurred to me, I wasn't lost enough to be responsive. I still had some options in my bag of tricks to exhaust before I would put all my eggs in the divine basket. You see? Maybe that's going on with you. I'm going to pray more that God would make people miserable. That's the precursor to salvation. You see? You know? What did some guys say? Uh, we should... Comfort the afflicted, but afflict the comfortable. Someone comfortable with life. Oh, my heavens, they'll never seek the giver of life. So let's just pray that the giver of life would make them miserable. Join with me. <laughs> it's true. Well, uh, Solomon finally came to a grand conclusion and Solomon finally found rest. And Solomon finally realized that God alone is the final answer. Here's what he said, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. This then is the grand conclusion in two words that Solomon came to. Fear God. What does that mean, fear God? Shake, rattle, roll? No. Tremble? Cower? Hide? No, 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 no. That's not what it means to fear God. To fear God is to stop living your life as if you are God. To fear the one and only true God is to recognize you ain't he. So stop calling the shots. Stop doing your own thing. Stop thinking you can take care of yourself. You can't even take the next breath if the real God doesn't allow it. To fear God is to stop living life. As if you are God. To respect him for who he is. Number one, he exists. Do you know how many people live life as practical atheists? They would deny to the death that they're atheists, but they might as well because they live in practice as if there is no God. To fear God is to begin by saying, oh yes, he exists. And he is good. And he is holy. And he is powerful. And he is a righteous judge. And he knows all things. And... Yeah, to fear God is to stop living as if you are God. And how 
Can it be known if one is truly God-fearing? Are you God-fearing? Am I God-fearing? Is there a way to know? Many profess to be. Well, Solomon says, yeah, here's the standard by which we can evaluate whether one is God-fearing or not. The conclusion, he said, when all has been heard is fear God and, that's important, fear God and keep his commandments. Fearing God, internal, private, perhaps not as noticeable as its overt counterpart. One is internal. Here's the externalization of fearing God. Are you obeying him? (laughs) Folks, we can learn a lot about what we each think about God by simply seeing how each of us lives life. How could I tell you I fear God and I do not do what he says? Didn't Jesus himself say that? Why do you exclaim that I am your Lord, Lord, when in fact you only give lip service to what I ask you to do? So Solomon gave us a good barometer. Do you fear God? Well, it'll be noticeable because we'll comply with his directives. And Solomon says, this grand conclusion, it applies to every single person. How could it be that every person who is, not, who is not self-generated, nobody produced their own life and nobody can sustain their own life. Nobody is self-generated and nobody is self-sustained. How could it be that that person wouldn't fear God, the giver and sustainer of life? No, this applies to every person, said Solomon. Fear God. That's the conclusion. Folks, if we do everything in life, if we do everything, if we experience everything, if we try everything, if we get everything, if we do everything but fear God, we will find life absolutely unmanageable. Maybe yours is like that right now. On the other hand, if we do nothing If we have nothing, if we attain to nothing, if we possess nothing, if we accumulate nothing, if we do nothing but fear God, I think we have found the resource to enable us to manage everything in life. You see why Solomon came to the conclusion? I've made it complicated, he would say, but it's really rather simple. Fear God. So I want to ask you a question as we draw to a close. Do you sense a kind of emptiness in your life? If so, God left you that way. You know that emptiness? God let it be. Sure. How can you fill someone who's already full of themselves? Tell me. That emptiness you feel? A loving God let it happen to you. Why? As the end result? No, 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 no. He wants you to be miserable with it. And he wants you to say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Take up your abode. Fill me. Indwell me. Inhabit me. My heart, someone once wrote. Let it be your home. 
I've gotten rid of the stuff in my heart, the possessions, the position, the quest for these things. They're not inherently wrong. It's just the appetite for these things in a quest for meaning. I've gotten rid of the possessions and the passions and the projects and the positions. And I've got... Now I cry out for a personal redeemer, a personal savior. The conclusion, said Solomon... The guy who had the most of what the world had to offer, the guy who was the smartest guy the world has ever had to offer, the guy who, had, who lived large. That guy said the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God. And you'll know you're doing it if you keep his commandments. And this applies to every single person. When I was a new Christian, I learned this song, Trust and Obey. It's Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God and keep his commandments. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Could I beseech you, if you're sensing that emptiness in your life, um, we, we would like for you to be introduced to the one who could resolve it for you. You're separated from the God, don't you see? Who's the only one who could make your life meaningful, who could reveal to you what you know in your heart has to do with eternity, but you can't come to grips with it, you can't apprehend it, you can't comprehend it. Why? Because you can't get to ultimate truths with your senses. That's the only way we can access the material world, this world. But life above the sun, which is real life, you can't get to it through your senses. You can't get to it through your mind. You can only get to it through revelation from the God who is above the sun. We could tell you what his name is. His name is Jesus. He's the Christ, the Messiah. That's what that means. He's the one anointed by God the Father to come and be the bridge between us and him so that we could by faith walk over him. <laughs> find forgiveness, find adoption, and find fullness of life. The Bible calls it abundant life, which leads to eternal life thereafter. Uh, we would like to tell you about that, Jesus, before you go tonight. So why don't you do yourself a favor? <laughs> Leave your futility behind, just like Solomon did. Let the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, replace your misery with peace. We could help you to do so. Before you leave tonight, we'll be up here so that informally we could chat with you. Lord Jesus, we bow before you in prayer, in reverence. That's what fear means, but also in recognition of who we are and in comparison who you are. We are sinners and you are holy. We fear you, not in the trembling negative sense, but out of sheer and utter respect. Thank you, though you be so big, somehow you reduced yourself becoming enfleshed so as to take up your abode in the form of your very spirit in our lives, if only... We would invite you to. Father, I pray in the very power of your spirit, you might search the hearts of each of us here. And if what's found is nothing, emptiness, I pray you would so move in that person's life that that person says, I'm separated because of sin. Save me, Savior. Be my personal Savior. Satisfy me, Prince of Peace. Show me about eternity. These things we pray. In the name, above all names, it's the name of the God who dwells above the sun. His name is Jesus the Christ. Amen.